All right, good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Kabbalah Cafe. It is great to see everyone here on this lovely morning. And for those, of course, in person, for those in person, of course, I hope you're enjoying the lavish breakfast, gourmet, five-star, four-course, it seems, <laughs> breakfast. Um, and for those online, I hope that you're enjoying breakfast together with us in spirit of Kabbalah Cafe. All right, so let's begin. So I first want to mention that today's class is graciously sponsored by Dr. Joy Maxey, who I am super honored to have here today in person. Dr. Maxey, great to see you. Um, and the class is sponsored in loving memory of her parents, um, and Geraldine Brittany Maxey, her mom, whose yard state is the sixth day of Tevet, and her father, Jesse Nicholas Maxey, whose yard state is the seventh day of Tevet. May their souls, their neshamot, have an aliyah, ascend on high, and as we say, uh, the traditional blessing is to be a good advocate on high and to bring down abundant blessings for you and the whole family and for, for everyone, for the community, for all those that, uh, that were near and dear to them. Let us say amen. amen. All right, so I want to begin with a, uh, with a story. And I wrote about the story last night. I, I sent the, the email. I usually send it Fridays. Didn't happen Friday. I sent it last night. But I, uh, I wrote in the email about the story of Icarus. Am I pronouncing that correct? Yeah? Icarus. My Greek mythology game is, you know, passable. Passable. So Icarus, the legend goes, or the mythology goes, that his father, his dad, made him a set of wings. And then he told him, don't fly too low, don't fly too high. Too low because... The moisture, the humidity is going to weigh down your wings, something like that. Fly too high, get too hot. If it gets too hot, then the wings that were made of feathers and string and wax, etc., the wings are going to melt and it's not going to be good. What happens? He flies too close to the sun. And as a result, his wings melt or the wax melts and he plunges into the sea and drowns. This is a, uh, a Greek mythology that is used um, typically f- as a cautionary tale to the idea of narcissism, um, you know, thinking too much. Anthony, we got to give a yashakov to Anthony. <laughs> Anthony, thank you. This breakfast is fabulous. Yashakov. We some had and we definitely spoke about it. <laughs> we let ev- we let everybody know and save travels, save travels to uh, to South Africa. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think he's going today. So any cook breakfast? This is the ded- this is the dedication we have over here. Very special. Um, so he flew too close to the sun. Cautionary tale about flying too close, getting too close to the light. And I, I, you know, what the Greek mythologists meant and what it means in the original is one thing. But I'll tell you what it means to me. It's a cautionary tale about spiritual narcissism. And this is something, a phenomenon that we find all the way back going to the beginning of time with Adam and Eve, the very first human beings that were fashioned in the image of God by God himself. Think about it. The first human beings were the divine handiwork, the craftsmanship of the creator, direct, 
direct from the manufacturer. Everyone else, all of us, are iterations of iterations. But the original human beings, Adam and Eve, Adam and Chava, they were OG. They were the original, original human beings. Original craftsmanship of, of Hashem. And the Torah tells us that God says to Adam and Eve that of all the trees, he placed them in the Garden of Eden, Gan Eden, and he told them as follows. He said, of all the trees in the garden, you may eat, but of the eights, hada tovera, you cannot eat. Of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat. And then he says, on the day that you eat of that tree, you're going to die. And you would think, you would think that that warning and that um, expression of caution would be sufficient that they wouldn't even go near the tree. Fast forward like two hours later, literally, literally, within a few hours, there they are munching on the fruit of the tree. What was it? It wasn't an apple according to uh, the Talmud. It was one of possibly met, you know, several items, several food items. But the bottom line is, there they are. And the question really is asked, how is it that their mortality or the potential of their mortality, how did that, that, that not scare them to the point that they would completely stay away from it? Oh, so excellent. So one answer is, they didn't even know what that meant. You're going to die. <laughs> Thank you. I don't even know what that word means. It's like what some say about Cain and Abel. right? The first homicide in history. Cain murders Abel. Right? And so some say the reason why, you know, I mean, Cain is obviously punished and he's, he's sent out into exile and to wander, etc. But one of the reasons why perhaps there's not a, a, a stronger punishment Maybe even a capital punishment, although if, you, if God took him out, then I don't know who else was left, right? If Cain and Abel are gone, then I think this whole thing ends. But nonetheless, or I guess Adam and Eve had more kids. All right, whatever. But the point is that one of the reasons that's said is because Cain did not know what a fatal strike was or could be. How would anyone know what a lethal blow would look like or what that would cause or what the words even mean of a lethal, what, what is a homicidal act? So that's one answer. That's one possible answer. But then there's another answer. And the other answer is what the snake, what the serpent tells Eve. The serpent tells Eve, and I'm paraphrasing, something to the effects of, well, the reason why God doesn't want you to eat from this tree is because you're going to be like God. That's all, because you're going to be like God. And that's all she needed to hear. <laughs> you had me at be like God. Right? That's all she needed to hear. If that was ever, if the, if the notion of flying too close to the sun would ever seem like a, a, a reason to step back, human behavior has shown us consistently throughout time from the beginning that the notion of getting so close to the sun that you become absorbed within the sun or losing your own identity that is not, that is not, or causing death, as it were, is not a reason to stay away, but a reason to actually get closer. Does that make sense? Human beings have an innate desire to touch things that are untouchable, to reach things 
that are unreachable. To experience things that are unexperienceable, to coin a new word in the English language. I was listening to a podcast last week. It's a podcast that asks questions amongst others that we would call, in Yiddish, I guess, a klutz kasha. I've explained what that is before in other classes. A klutz kasha is a question that is so simple and so basic that no one asks it. It's like so, it's like almost too obvious to ask. And so the question of this, uh, of this podcast was, why is it, you know, with the, uh, um, I think, uh, fentanyl. Fentanyl, is that, the, is that the name? Why is it that people are buying drugs with fentanyl? Or why are people selling drugs with fentanyl? When we know that these things are, it's lethal, it's deadly, it's killing people. So who would, so think about it from, from an from a, uh, economic perspective. Who would go, right, so let's say you're, let's say you, let's, so one, you have a drug dealer. So you would think you're trying to keep your clientele alive. You would think, right? Why would you sell? It's, not, it's, a, it's an obvious question. Again, no one's asking it, but this podcast asks the question. If, if you want your clientele to buy more, then why are you selling something that could quite possibly and does kill people? Doesn't make any sense. Or why would you lace it? Huh? Okay, so that's one answer. That's one answer. Yeah, one answer is that it's, yeah. But there was a fascinating, it got to a fascinating place in this conversation. Person spoke to, to, to individuals who, who are, who have been in that, in, in that area, in that field. And one of the reasons that, uh, one of the, one of the, ins- one of the, it was just an incredible insight that I, that I got from that discussion was that If an addict hears that a certain drug has taken people so far that they've lost their lives, that's not a deterrence. That's actually a selling point. How high can I get? This, this takes someone so high, they even so high that they don't come back from the high. That's not a deterrent for someone looking for a high. That's actually a selling point. This can take you. To their errors. In other words, I can be the one that gets. Almost high, right up there. But I don't leave. Icarus. Exactly. Flying too close to the sun. It's not a, oh, stay away from this. It gets people so high that they lose. Their, this is, no, no, no. This is, this is a positive. This is, I can get so close. I can get so high. And so who, so in the, in the Torah, we have a story. We have this exact story. The two sons of Aaron. Nadav and Avihu. Right? We, I think many of us are familiar with the story. The Torah tells us, you know, so let's just do the timeline here. So Jews were slaves in Egypt. Exodus, 49 days after the Exodus, they received the Torah at, si- at Mount Sinai. 40 days later, they sinned with the golden calf. A few months later, they were finally forgiven, and the process, it was Yom Kippur, uh, the day of Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. Because of that, the Jews are forgiven, and the national building project of the Mishkan begins. Now it's time to build the Mishkan. And the Mishkan project takes several months. 
and it is completed. And the opening day of the Mishkan, the ribbon-cutting ceremony, happens on Rosh Chodesh Nisan, the first day of Nisan. This is a little less, 15 days less than a full year after the Exodus. Again, the Exodus occurs on the 15th day of Nisan. So almost a full Jewish calendar year later, the first day of Nisan, right? 15 days before the first Exodus anniversary is when the Mishkan is open for business. The Torah portion that talks about this is called Shmini. The Torah says, and it was on the eighth day of the inauguration, which was really the opening day of the Mishkan. On that opening day of the Mishkan, what happens is that the two sons of Aaron, the two older sons of Aaron, Nadav and Avihu, they bring an Esh Zarah, they bring a foreign fire that God had not commanded them to bring. And they bring this foreign fire, and the Torah says that they lost their lives. That a fire came down from heaven, consumed them, and they lost their lives. And there are many commentaries that seek to explain what exactly happened. What was this foreign fire that these two individuals um, uh, brought? What did they, what did they do? What, did they, what, what happened? How and why did they lose their lives? Some commentaries say it's because they entered into the Holy of Holies. They entered into that space while intoxicated. Some say that they brought an incense offering that they were not commanded to bring. Others say that they, uh, they paskin, they, they issued a ruling of Jewish law in front of Moses. They shouldn't have done that. That was disrespectful. There are many, there, there are at least a half a dozen to maybe a dozen or maybe even more various rationales that are, that are given within the Torah commentaries as to what they did to, uh, to, um, to uh, induce, as it were, their own death. Many different angles on this. But I'll tell you what the Arachayim HaKadr says. The Arachayim was a, was a Kabbalist. And he gives a mystical interpretation of this story. And the way he describes it is that what the two sons of Aaron experienced, what they did, was they experienced a ratzo without a shuv. That's the language. What is ratzo with a shuv? Ratzo means yearning. It means desire. It means seeking connection. But without a shuv, without, a, without grounding. They sought the high without coming back. They got too close. They flew too close to the sun. Spiritually. They flew too close to the sun. The Torah, according to the mystics, it wasn't necessarily a mistake. It was quite intentional. They wanted such a sublime experience as such that their souls would merge or remerge with the source. But what happens when that happens? There's nothing left to come back to the body. We call this klot hanefesh. Expiation of the soul, where the soul, as it were, almost jumps out of the body, leaps out of the body to connect with the light of Hashem, and thus does not come back to reignite or to, to re, uh, reanimate the body. 
You know, we have these experiences in our lives, these moments of truth or these moments of spiritual ecstasy. You know, maybe in a small measure or maybe in a large measure. Maybe it's on a Yom Kippur when we feel very spiritually excited. And we have these spiritual highs. The question is always after the spiritual high, the question is, what do we do with that high? What do we do with that high? Are we integrating it back into, are we grounding it, regrounding it? Or are we getting carried away with the high? To the point that whatever that inspiration looks like, it remains aloof and really disappears as it were. In the example of Nadav and Avihu, in that cautionary tale, we encountered two individuals that were so focused on their spiritual ascent that they, in fact, got what they wanted and their souls left this, their, their bodies and left this world. And that's what happens with Nadav and Avihu. Does that mean they were, wanted to become, their goal was to become God-like? Their goal was that their soul should basically return on high and, re, uh, and be subsumed within the source, light. It's kind of like Kabbalah says when you have a, we have a bonfire or a larger fire and you hold a candle, you take a candle and approach the larger fire, you'll see the flame of the small candle almost jump toward the, the larger fire. It's like the soul that is jumping toward. I'm not an expert in NDEs. That's not my specialty. This is Nomi Freeman is NDEs, of course, are near-death experiences. Um, but I've heard, I've heard this being said about, uh, about NDEs. When you see the light, it's very attractive. Don't go toward the light, right? Because that means there may not be any going back from that. Nadav and Avihu were so spiritually supercharged that what they wanted was for their souls to have the ultimate spiritual high, a high that they would not return from. That wasn't a negative. That was a positive for them. That was what they wanted. That wasn't a flaw. That was a feature. They wanted that, and they got that. And although that sounds like the highest human experience, we know that the truth is anything but. How do you know they got? They got what? Their souls went back up. That's what they wanted. They got what they wanted. They wanted to send their souls back. They got that. But we know that at the end of the day, although that seems like, or it could be construed as, the highest divine experience that a human being can experience. It's like the highest high ever but the truth is that that's not why we're here. And the reason why we're here is not to leave, is not to escape. It's not to go, it's not to return to sender. But it's rather to be here in the here and now. Wow, it suddenly got quieter. What was that? Huh? The spiritual high. Could be. I assumed that that was normal, normal soundtrack. Like, what's this? What's this quiet? That's, that's interesting. So they, they got what they wanted. But in truth, it was a mistake. I'm not saying it's a mistake. The Torah says it's a mistake. Right? The, God says, Yain Altesh. Right? Don't go in drunk. Don't serve. Don't serve intoxicated. And as the mystics explain, what's the intoxication? 
It's literally talking about a high. The Torah says, don't serve while high. And the mystics say, what does that mean? Don't serve God in a state of trying to reach a high. Serving God means to be grounded in the here and now. To integrate the spiritual ecstasy with pragmatic application. Yes, we need to feel inspired. We need to feel spiritual. But the next step is to ground that spiritual excitement into something tangible in the here and now. Yeah. Flying too close to the sun is not the ideal. But either flying too close to the earth. Too too low either, right? You need to experience also those highs. You need to be able to um, get out of the you know the uh, the gravitational pull of this world and be able to climb a little bit. That's why we have Shabbat. That's why we have Torah study. That's why we have holidays and Yom Kippur. We have days of inspiration to lift us out of the here and now. But the goal is always to integrate back into the here and now. So we have this um, this uh, a similar. Um, construct, and I've shared this many times before when it comes to the sin of the spies. And we did a whole series on the sin of the spies, the spies that Moses sent. He sent 12 spies to scout out the land of Israel, and they come back. 10 out of 12 come back with a negative report about the land. Well, they say the land is beautiful. However, there's no way we can conquer it. There's giants. They're going to eat us alive. We'll be destroyed. That's what the spies come back and say. And the son of um, um, Rabbi Chaim Vital, right? The Arizal, Loriana Kabbalah. Rabbi Chaim Vital was a student, and his son was Rabbi, I think, Rabbi David Vital, Rabbi Shmuel Vital, one of those two. Uh, Rabbi Chaim Vital's son says the following explanation. Again, I've shared this in previous, uh, previous sessions. The question is why did the spies, 10 of the spies, come back with a negative report? Like, what was that? They didn't believe in God. They didn't believe that God could help them you know, conquer the land of Israel after what he did to the Egyptians, split the sea, gave them the Torah. They didn't believe. How does that make any sense? So the explanation is, they did believe. They did believe. But they wanted to remain spiritually connected. They didn't want to go into a materialistic land. They didn't want to go into a physical space and deal with physical things. They, don't, they wanted to remain in a spiritually pure environment. Think about what life looked like in the wilderness. What did you have? You didn't, have, you didn't need a job, right? You didn't have to work. You didn't need to, you know, um, uh, farm. The food was sent to your doorstep. You had Moses there all the time teaching you Torah. Life was great. Spiritual oasis. And so all they wanted was to remain in a spiritual oasis, together with Moses. They knew that once they were to step foot into the land of Israel, number one, Moses would no longer be there. They knew that Moses would pass away before they would enter the land of Israel. And going into Israel, they would not have the spiritual, um, that spiritual purity. They would now be required to be farmers and cattle, herds, people. They would be involved now in physical activity. And they didn't want that. They wanted to remain pure and spiritual. So what we have here is, again, the same idea, the same dynamic of individuals that are flying too close to the sun. They want too much of a spiritual high. 
and they miss the fact that that's not what they're intended, that's not what their purpose is. Purpose is not to fly too close to the purpose is to integrate it. You have the same situation with what we're reading in the Torah right now. The drama between Yosef and his brothers. So what happens? Yosef is a dreamer. He's got the technicolor dream coat. He's got, right, he's wearing flashy colors. His brothers, more, a little more straightforward, a little bit more straight-laced. And they see him as this anomaly, as this oddity. Who is this guy with all the dreams? And they don't like him. And so what do they do? They want to kill him. And then they decide, instead of killing him, what do we get from that? If we kill him, we get nothing. Just let's sell him. Make a few shekels. Or whatever currency they used. So they sold him as a slave. So they went from murder to human trafficking. It's not a great, this is not a great uh, sequence of events. Yosef, of course, Joseph ends up in Egypt, and that whole drama plays out. But in the Torah portion we read yesterday in synagogues around the world, we read about their faithful encounter 22 years later, after the sale. So he was sold when he was, how old was he? 17. 22 years later, how old is he? 39. I just did the quick math here. I have it, have it on my hand, right? So he's 39. He's 39. The brothers, remember, he was one of the younger brothers, right? And so his other brothers are older. So they're, how old are they? I don't know. 60, 50. Yeah, in their 40s, 50s, whatever it was. So they're much older. The Torah says there's a fam famine breaks out, which Yosef predicted. And what does he do? So, and what happens? So the 10, 10 brothers of Yosef, the 10 older brothers, they come down to Egypt to buy food. And then they meet. And the Torah says the famous words. Yosef recognized them, but they didn't recognize him. And everyone asked the question, how did they not recognize him? How is that possible? It's, it's their brother. But it's a 17-year-old boy. So Rashi says, good, Rashi says, well, he didn't have a beard. Now he has a beard. It's like Clark Kent and Superman. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? It's like, right, the glasses. It's like, oh, I, oh, you have glasses. Oh, totally different person. They didn't get any sense that this was their brother. First of all, they knew that their brother was in Egypt. They knew that. Some, some say they didn't. They sold them to the Ishmaelites. They, they left them in Egypt. Or... True, but when he had a dialogue with them, Rashi says there was a dialogue that happened. What was the dialogue? He said, you're spies. And they said, no, we're 10 brothers. Sorry, we're 12 brothers. One's gone. One's with our father. He says, well, um, and we're looking for the one that's missing. He says, and what if you find him? He says, well, we'll, we'll rescue him. And what if it comes to a fight? We're prepared to kill or be killed. He says, oh, see, I told you you're here for a fight. So they indicated that they had a sense that he might be in Egypt also. As a side gig. As side. They had two, two objectives. To get food and maybe look for their brother also. Seems like that from Rashi and from the commentaries. And so they're speaking to this guy. Who's their brother? And there's no indication. So here's what Kabbalah says. Kabbalah says that there's no way that they believed that this man 
who is a viceroy in Egypt, could be their brother. And here's the explanation. The brothers were shepherds. That's what they did. And Yosef was... What would we call... What would we call... Um, Yosef, he was a Renaissance man. Can we call him that? Is that, the right, is that the right phrase? Renaissance man? A modern man? A man who wasn't afraid to walk the halls of power and still be called Yosef at Sandik. Didn't lose, didn't lose his identity, who he was. In fact, you know what happens when the people ask him for food after the seven years of famine? Nobody tells them? Right. Cut it out. No. He said... He's, he says, if you want food, brismila. That's what he tells the people in Egypt. If you want food, bris. Why? To circumcise. To have a bris. That's what he says. And again, different commentators explain why, but Yosef never lost his values, his Jewish values. This is who he was. He was called Safnas Panech. By the way, what does. There's a Medrash that says that when God tells Moses, when, God, when Hashem tells Moshe that he's not going into Israel, he gets very upset. And it, right, upset, he gets sad. He says to Hashem, it's not fair. For, for all these years, or for all this time, I've been carrying the, the bones of Yosef, who we rescued from the Nile River the night of the Exodus. Moses went and got the remains of Yosef and facilitated carrying out the remains of Yosef. He says, Yosef is going to end up in Israel and me who helped coordinate that, I'm not going to end up in Israel. It's not fair. Hashem tells him, he who was recognized as connected to Israel will be buried in Israel. And he who was not recognized as being connected with Israel will not be buried in Israel. What does it mean? Remember when, uh, when Yosef was, huh? Yeah, remember when, Yo when, when Yosef was accused by his master's wife yeah. of assault? You know what she refers to him as? What she, how she refers to him? Evidivri, a Hebrew, a Hebrew slave. And remember when, and remember when, no, because he was, he carried his identity on his sleeve. When else was he referred to as Ivri? Ah, oh, right. And when the butler says, when Pharaoh says, I have dreams that need interpretation, and the butler's like, ah, I know a guy, right? He says, I know a Hebrew slave. Whereas when Moses flees to Midian, and he meets his future wife, Tzipporah, at the well, fends off the shepherds that used to harass the daughters of Yisrael, right? And they come home and Yisrael says, Jethro says, Yisrael says to his daughters, wow, you came back fast today, what happened? They say, oh, an Egyptian man helped us. Not a Jew, not a Hebrew, an Egyptian man. And so Hashem tells Moshe in this dramatic midrash, Hashem tells Moshe that the one who was identified with Israel is going to be buried in Israel, and the one who's not is not. 
I don't make the decisions. I'm just reporting the Medrash. The Medrash says. But here's the point. Here's the point. Hold on. I have uh, had a few tabs open in my brain. Let's, let's circle back. How do we get there? Oh, so here we go. The brothers were shepherds. They're other brothers. Right? The other ten brothers were shepherds. Yosef was a Renaissance man. He was a modern man. He could walk the halls of power, and everyone knew he was a Jew. They knew who he was. And in case they didn't, he made it obvious with the circumcision request. Right? That was a Jewish thing. Hey, Sean. Hey, Sean. Say hi to our Sunday class. This is my son, Shalom, who's usually in yeshiva in Chicago, except for when they let him out on rare occasions. Good to see you. You got some breakfast? Yeah. Hanukkah, yeah. All right. Take a coat back. That's right. He's, yeah, he's, in, he's not here. No, he's not here. Mendel came home. Mendel's somewhere. Oh, so here's the point. At 17, I don't know, Medrash, 17? I don't know, how old is Mendel? 16? He's got a beard. Yosef didn't have a beard at 17, he only had a beard later on. I don't think he's going to make it. Huh? Yeah, he'll make it. All right. We'll see you, see you Sean. Catch you after the class. Um, so here's the deal. The brothers were, oh, Yosef, even when he walked in the halls of power, in the halls of, of government, he did not relinquish his identity. And the brothers could not understand that. Now, yes, he did look like an Egyptian, I guess, to the point that when the brothers met him, they didn't realize he was a Jew. So I guess at some, on some level, he was uh, walking like an Egyptian. Who was that? That was um, Steve Martin. Steve Martin. I met Steve Martin. You did? I met Steve Martin. Wow. He wouldn't say hi to me. <laughs> I, met him in, I, I met him in St. Bart's, of all places. This is a true story. Wait, anyway. Was he reasonable? We, it was a bunch of Chabad guys oh, is that, right? that said hi to him, and he was like, okay, this is getting weird. <laughs> he didn't say that, but his face, his face said that. He's like, I don't know what happened. I'm here for a vacation. Steve Martin. Anyway, back to the story. The brothers could not fathom someone, could not fathom someone with, in the Abrahamic mold, being able to integrate into society like that and still maintain both elements. How can you integrate monotheism and Yiddish? How can you integrate that into a place like Egypt? Be impossible. To have a connection with God, you need to be isolated on a mountaintop, surrounded by sheep. That's the only way. That's like the extent of the distraction in order to keep focused on God. That's what they believed as shepherds. And Yosef really opened up a new pathway. The pathway for what I guess we would call the modern Jew. I.e. someone who can walk you know, the halls of Wall Street. Or can walk the halls of the courtroom. Or can walk into the operating room. And still have their values with them. And not have to check them at the door. And how is that possible? Who's the template? Abraham? Isaac, who never left Israel? No. Even Jacob. He went to Laban. He went to Haran. 
So he went out of Israel, he went into hostile territory? Yeah, but what did he do over there? He hung out with the sheep. He hung out with the sheep. So Who's the first guy who goes and has a, oh, can I say it? Has a real job. <laughs> and still is called Yosef Atzadik. Oh, I gave it away. It's Yosef. Yosef is the, the, uh, the template, the archetype for you and I. For people who are not disassociated with reality. People not disassociated with real life. People who are in the real life, the real life, I don't know what that is, who are living a real life and yet connected. Yeah. No, so it's basically prior generations, even in the United States, what you're saying is that people, Jews, and a lot of professions figured they had to hide yes. their name, change their last name, whatever, in order to get ahead. Is that sort of the yes. modern day version? Yes, well, so here's the thing. I think, and, and it's so interesting because yesterday I gave a class about the public menorah lightings and the big constitutional debate in the Supreme Court case. And, I, and, and one of the texts that I cited was from Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. And he, sa he frames it similar to what you're saying. He says that when Jews came from the old country, old country, as it were, um, they did one of two things, by and large. Either they assimilated or they segregated themselves. Either they, say, either they threw their tefillin overboard and said, that's it, we're Americans. Or they said, oh, no, we have to maintain our identity, so we're going to put up walls around our neighborhood and create a ghetto in which we have no interaction with the outside world because otherwise it's going to contaminate or you know, somehow you know, corrupt our values. And Yosef teaches us a third approach. You don't have to give up. You don't have to hide. Is it the same thing? No, it's two different things, right? You don't have to assimilate, nor do you have to put walls around it. You can be out there in the world and have your values and wear your values on your sleeve and share them with others. That's the ultimate. That's the ideal. That's the Yosef. That's the ideal Yosef model. So Kabbalah teaches that when the Torah tells us, just to come full circle here, when the Torah says that he recognized his brothers, but they didn't recognize him. Kabbalah says, you know what that means? They couldn't fathom how you could have a child of Yaakov, a child of Jacob, who is a tzaddik, who is in a position of authority like this, who's the uh, chief economist of, uh, of Egypt. It didn't make any sense. It's, in, it's unfathomable. And yet, that was the case. They didn't recognize him. They didn't recognize a soul that can dance in both domains. But the truth is that a soul not dancing in both domains is a soul that is otherwise flying too close to the sun. A soul that only, only finds satisfaction in spaces of spiritual isolation is a soul that's not committed to the purpose for which it was sent below, which is to make a difference in this world and not to escape this world. Yeah. I'm not positive how to word it, but comparing the ones that are isolated, I mean, what do you say about Mayor Sharon or, you know, Williamsburg? Yeah. I'm with you. Good question. So, what bottom line, or is this, am I, is this, uh, um, you know, are we, are we saying that that's. Not Right. I, I, would, I would never criticize. I'm not, I'm not going to criticize anyone. I'm just saying that, that certainly as one, as, you, as 
it's probably obvious the Chabad approach is a very different approach. The Rebbe never tried to build up Crown Heights as a bastion of, like, everyone should be here. It was like, oh, welcome to Crown Heights. Where are you going? Right? right. Well, you need to go out. Right? Go out into the world and go out into the field. And, uh, and, and when there was a lot of concern of how can you send young couples out, right, to 1960s or 1970s California, right? Berkeley, California. Like, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Right? Right. First of all, was it Philly? But the big one, the first big one. So, I, you know, and, and when people asked the rebel, what are you doing? He said, I'm very confident that we don't have to hide. We don't have to isolate. And if we're exposed to the outside world, it doesn't mean we're going to start melting and start, uh, you know, and, 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 and uh, you know, getting corrupted. We can be strong and proud out there in the world like a Yosef, like a Yosef. In fact, the Rebbe said that the idea of shlichut, the idea of, of this, of, of going out there into the world, was instituted by his father-in-law, whose name was Yosef, Yosef Yitzchak. The previous Rebbe's name was Yosef. And the Rebbe made that connection, that this is a Yosef type of type approach, a Joseph approach, to not need to hide. It's not only not need to hide, it's, it's not believe that the belief that God is only found on the mountaintop, only found in those sublime experiences, or that to get close, I have to get close to the sun. Or that if you're in the valley, you're not a victim. I mean, it's from the Parsha where basically once he confronts his brothers, Joseph said, don't feel bad about it, paraphrasing, don't feel bad about it, I'm not a victim. You didn't sell me, Hashem sent me. Exactly. the same word that Shliach, right. Yes, exactly. That's, and that's uh, the end of this week's parsha. Where he's, uh, sorry, that is... That's next week. That's next, after Yaakov dies and they're all afraid. He says, no, it's exactly that. You didn't sell me. God sent me. I'm not a victim. right? I'm a messenger. And that's a powerful reframing. That's perhaps, at least the, the way I feel it, maybe the single most powerful reframing in the entire Torah. To not view oneself as a victim of other human beings, but someone who has been put in whatever place they've been directly by God for the next great thing. It's an incredible reframing. Well, if it's, if it's part of Judaism, it's supposed to be to be a light unto the nation, what you're saying. There you go. You've got to be closer to the nation. You've got to be out there. <laughs> Very good. Right. If you're isolated, then where's the light? Now, you could argue that the light... You don't have to be of the nation, per se. Correct. Correct. There's no question that it's a tricky balance. There's no question that the path is fraught with challenge and may perhaps we would even call it danger. There's no question. But there's also no question that as the patriarchal you know, evolution you know, in Torah, as we see the generational evolution happen, we see clearly that the tide is turning away from isolationism Judaism to what we would call perhaps contemporary Judaism. A Judaism that is forward-facing, that is outward-facing, that is a Judaism of the people or of the world and not a Judaism that is isolated from the world. It's a very different approach, but it's what we see. And again, the idea of the brothers not recognizing him is not believing that that path is a possibility. 
believing that either you choose the world or you choose God, but you can only have one flavor. You can't have both. And Yosef says, you can have both. Not that he's, you know, not that he's hitting the casino and the synagogue in the same night, but that, that's not what I mean, you could have it both. What I, although, road trip, right? But what he's saying is that you can live a life a, a life of being present in this world and at the same time have that experience. And again, that is not um, one path. It's the ideal path because the other option, and I think this was mentioned, I think Larry mentioned this a, a little while ago, the other option is really, and, and I hesitate to say this, but at the end of the day, I, I have to say this, it's what we would call spiritual narcissism. The idea of I need that connection. I want that connection. I, you know, I, I want to feel that high spiritually is, is, is like Icarus. It's like a it's, a, it's an expression of spiritual narcissism where a person says, I'm in it for me. What God wants is secondary because we know what God wants. God wants us to be here. God wants us, God sent the soul here, not for us to go back. By the way, some people could view it like that. Some people could see life as the, the effort of life is to return to sender. Right? God takes a soul, a piece of spirit, and, 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 and thrusts it into a physical space. And a person could say, and our job is to, uh, to reverse the process. Our job is to undo, is to unravel the process, is to take off, is to remove all of those physical, materialistic um, binds that hold back the soul, release the soul, and allow the soul to soar back up. That's an approach. That's not the Jewish approach. It could be an approach. Judaism says that is spiritually selfish. That's not why we're here. We're not here to escape. We're here, like Yosef, to bring the message or to bring spirituality, to bring godliness into this space, not to leave this space. To share the connection. To share the connection. To bring the light here. To bring heaven down to earth. To integrate heaven and earth together. Not in a way that undoes earth. To become heaven. In the language of Kabbalah, it's bringing the light into the vessels. And not undoing the vessels. It's not shattering the vessels and let the light go back. It's bringing the light into the vessels. So that the vessels also shine. And that's the purpose of life. And so when we think about another of a view, individuals that sought that spiritual, the highest of spiritual highs, and then achieved it, the Torah does not, even though Moses tells his brother, Moshe tells Aaron, who's it was his two sons, he tells him, they were greater than us, than you and I. They were greater tzaddikim than us. Because look, Look, look what happened to their souls. They ascended in a, in a pure and perfect way. Although that's how Moshe consoles Aaron. Aaron, at the end of the day, that's not the ideal. The ideal is here and now, not escaping, but here and now. Integration. So in our text, we've so far, thus far, discussed two different spiritual personas. The child and the servant, or using the exact language of, of the discourse, the Ben and the Eved, 
The ben is literally translated as the son, and the Abed is a slave. The son and the slave. And I'm sure I mentioned this at some point in, in the series. Um, on, on the high holidays, we even use this double refrain. We use this refrain, Avinu Malkainu, referring to God. God is our father and our king, which means that we are a child and a servant. Right? Father and king implies that us, relationship is father, child, king, subject. Straight up. Im kebanim. Im ka'avadim. We say in the prayers, if we're like sons, if we're like servants. It's a longer prayer. I don't remember all the context of the prayer, but I know. Im kebanim. Im ka'avadim. Anyway, point is, however it goes, are we like children? Are we like servants? The answer is we are both. And we described, hence, uh, or thus far, we described what the child-parent relationship to God looks like. It's a soul that's so excited about God that the soul knows what God wants, wants to do what God wants, is so excited about God, is all in. And then you have the other persona, which is the servant. The servant persona is not in it because the servant wants it or likes it. The servant's in it because it has to be done. And they have to do it. It's not, I want to do it. Who's I want? (laughs) What are those words even mean? I want? Who's the I that wants? I want, it needs to be done. I got to do it. It's not even I have to do it. It's, it has to be done by me. <laughs> I come last. It has to be done. If you ask anybody who reads this, or who, who looks at these two personas, these two paradigms, you would say that the ideal paradigm, the ideal persona is the son and not the evid, is, is, is the child and not the slave, not the servant. Because wouldn't it be great to serve God? Wouldn't it be great to be there for God and be excited about it as opposed to feel that burden, feel it as an obligation? Who wouldn't want to see Judaism, Torah and mitzvot, as something exciting as opposed to something burdensome? Right? Aren't we all trying to move out of the, the burdensome, the yoke space of Judaism into a space of where it feels good, where it feels amazing? That would be like the Holy Grail. And yet, and yet, it always sounds too good to be true, right? And yet, there is an advantage to the servant over the son. What's the advantage? You see, the son is very excited about everything. But because of that, because of that, it can almost become self-serving. Even though it's ultimately serving God, but it can also feel very self-serving. I am excited about this. I want to do this. Yes, it's also what my parent wants, i.e. God wants, but I want to do it. I like doing it. It's a very short hop from I want to, well, to I want. I want what God wants to I want what I want. And I can couch that in very holy terms. I can couch that in a halo. Correct. Correct. The pure Ben, the pure son 
service that we've been speaking about is someone who is, who is on the right page. But, but the challenge is that when it's coming from a place of, of, of me, of, of ego, even if it's holy ego, Batman, right? Even if it's holy ego, it's a very short hop from holy ego to unholy ego couched in holiness. And what that looks like, again, is spiritual narcissism. It's where I get carried away with what I want and start forgetting about what God actually wants. The servant persona is someone who is not in it for themselves at all. It's not that I want to do this. I would rather be doing something else. But this is, this is what I'm obligated to do, so I'm doing it. In that space, it's not about you. The danger of you then doing what you want to do and couching it in terms of, 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 you know, of, of uh, um, spiritual terms it has, been, has been reduced because you're not thinking about yourself in that moment. This is not about you. This is about what needs to be done. Whereas when you're excited about it, when you want it, all right, well, if you're activating your, your desire, then what happens when it points in a different direction? Yes, B. I'm holding up a two, but I mean B two. <laughs> to B. Correct. You don't want to do it. But you're obligated to do it. Now again, that sounds horrible. Oh my gosh, imagine approaching life feeling like you have to do things. That sounds so that sounds so oppressive. But the, the upside of that is that the danger of the ego is 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 mitigated because you're not in the ego space. The problem is when you're into it, the question then becomes, are you into it because of the cause or because of yourself? And if you're into it because of yourself, well then at what point does it, does it switch over to doing what you want to do? Give me a simple example in a relationship. Example that we've used many, many times before. The difference between the value of love in a relationship or respect in a relationship, right? So you need both love and respect. Let's assume you need love and respect. Right? Let's start off with that assumption. So what would, so, so people think, well, let's not start with that assumption. People think and believe, especially if you, I don't know, I guess if you follow uh, um, Hollywood fairy tales and whatever, that all you need is love. In fact, someone should make a song called All You Need Is Love. <laughs> all you need is love, love is all you need. That would be a perfect chorus. Beatles? Yeah. There you go. Okay. All you need is love. And that would imply that, well, all you need is love. But we know that's not true. Because you have many people that are very in love, or that at some point were very in love, and then, and then it, something happens. Because love is and never is the answer. Love is an emotion, love is a feeling. But what love also is, is very narcissistic. In fact, of all the emotions, I would argue it's the most narcissistic. I feel love, I'm in love, right? I love you, you're third in that sentence. I'm first, then love, then, okay, fine, you. Love is, love is the most narcissistic emotion. 
Love is about how, typically, the way we frame, we, we conceive of love is, love is how you make me feel. How I feel about you, i.e., how you make me feel, right? Love is, can be, can be very narcissistic. And therefore, what starts off as a person thinking they actually love that person could end up being realized as a person who loves themselves. And when that person no longer serves that need for self, well, then that person has no role anymore any longer in my life. Because you're no longer giving me what I need. So then I no longer love you because I never loved you. I loved myself. That's the danger of love. Someone loves God. I love, I love doing a mitzvah. One second, slow it down. Slow it down. What do you love? Who do you love? And why? What are you loving? You love the mitzvah? Do you love how it makes you feel? What happens if you don't feel that way tomorrow? Are you going to do the mitzvah anyway? You know who does the mitzvah even when they don't feel excited? The servant. The servant is the modality of divine service that will be always the most consistent because it's not thinking about self. It's not, what do I get out of this or how do I feel? When, yeah. Can the servant feel resentful after a while? Sure. That's not healthy. <laughs> Are there, uh, is there a downside to the servant persona? Absolutely. But we won't talk about that today. <laughs> Look, everything is taken, you know, everything is taken in a certain, in a certain space. So today, what I intended to, to contrast is this idea of what appears to be the highest actually not being the highest. There is a concept of flying too close to the sun. There is a concept of getting too carried away with one's own notion of spirituality. There is this, there is this the possibility for someone to get so consumed with that high that it becomes all about the high and not about what they're here for. And that's true in a very real way, spiritually. It's not just a physical cautionary tale. It's not just a pragmatic you know, uh, um, you know, life uh, advice. This is spiritual wisdom. The Torah says that Nadav and Aviyu were in love with God and they wanted to get super close. And they got so close, they ended up doing something that God didn't want them to do in the name of closeness because they were thinking about what they wanted and not what God wanted. The Ben, the son, starts off thinking, starts off in a space of, I want to do what God wants. But when there's that level of excitement, it's not such a leap to say that it may end up tomorrow in, well, I'm going to do what I want to do. Because it's all about me. So when it's all about me, so what happens when I have a desire today that's a little different than yesterday? So today I'm going to go that direction. I'm going to deviate away from, it starts off as I want to do that. And that happens to be aligned with what God wants. Well, tomorrow I want to do that, and that's not aligned, but I, but I want to do it. Yesterday I did what I want to do. Today I'm going to do what I want to do. Does that make sense? As opposed to the servant, the Evid. The Evid says, it's not about me. I don't want to do this, but I need to do this. It's my obligation. It's my calling. 
I've been tasked to do this. It starts, you see, Yosef begins with Yaakov. Yaakov recognized Yosef's greatness. Even though Yaakov never lived that life, Yaakov never walked the halls of, uh, of, of Pharaoh's palace. But it started with Yaakov. It started when he put on the clothes of Esau. He put on his brother's suit for one day. And he got the blessings. When he put on that power suit with a tie, yeah, I know it wasn't. Don't worry. I didn't read like a, like a random uh, false narrative. Stay with me. He puts on his brother's clothes for one day. And there's power in that moment. It sets the stage for the next generation. For Yosef. It sets the stage. It's the opening for a Jew to look like Esau and really be Yaakov inside. It sets the stage for a Jew to step into the business meeting, step into the operating room, step into the boardroom, step into the shop, right? And look like everyone else, allegedly, but inside carry a deep truth. And they're able to share that with the others. Hakol kol Yaakov The voice is Jacob's. The hands are Esau's. And that set the stage. Why do you think that Yaakov loved Yosef? Because he saw that this was the son who would fulfill this vision that he himself didn't even want. His mother told him to do it. This goes back to Rebecca. She's the one that sees this. She's the one that sees where Judaism needs to head. She says, enough with this isolationism. You need to put on the clothes of Esau and be Yaakov inside. And he says, no, what's going to happen? I'm going to get a curse. She's like, I'll take the curse. And so Yaakov, and Yaakov never lives it. For one day he lived it. But then he sees his son Yosef. And he recognized that Yosef, Yosef is different. Yosef is the one that can make this happen. That's why when Yosef is born, where does Yaakov go? Back home. Yaakov heads home when? The moment Yosef is born. Esau is the cash. Esau is the teven. Esau is the, uh, the straw. Yosef is the flame. Yosef is the one that can deal with the Esau's in the world. Yaakov didn't feel he was up to it. He put on the clothes for one day and then he bounced. Only when Yosef, Yaakov, only when Yosef was born, he heads back home. He realized that with Yosef, we can take on the world. We don't need to be isolated. We don't need to hide. With Yosef, we can take on the world. So Yosef takes on the world. The power of Yosef is that he's not in it for himself. When you're in it for yourself, or when you're, when you're spiritually intoxicated, then it looks like isolationism. Then you're running your own show. You're running your own show, you're running away, you're hiding and you're escaping. But when you're in it for the cause, then when your mother says, put on the suit and the tie, you put on the suit and tie. And when God says, I want you to make a difference in the world, I say, but I don't want to. I want to stay with you. I want to hang out with you all day. I don't want to go into the world. You do what God says. Not because you like it. If you like it, that can lead to problems. 
the first shliach, I mentioned casinos before, the, fir, the shli, first shliach that was sent to uh, Vegas was a guy who didn't want to go to Vegas. Because if you had a guy who wanted to go to Vegas, that's not who you want in Vegas. Are you with me on that? The guy that's like, oh, give me the Vegas gig, we will not give you the Vegas gig. Rabbi Harlick, huh? Send that guy to Alabama. To Alabama. <laughs> or, who, or wherever. You don't want to send the guy who wants Vegas. The guy's like, yeah, I want, to, I want to wear this suit. It's like, oh no, we don't want you wearing the suit. It's the Yaakov who doesn't want to wear the suit. Who knows that he has to wear the suit because that's the calling. Not because I want to do it, it's the calling. Left to my own devices, I would love to just, you know, study Torah all day. But I got a, I got a mission. That's the one. That's the one that we need. That's our man in Vegas. Rabbi Harlick, you're the man in Vegas for a reason. And now the Chabad house is paved. Not paved. Anyone been to the Chabad in Vegas? No. No? The floor is from maybe the Venetian or the Bellagio. Yeah, yeah. It's the leftovers from... It's because his donor was... Yeah. Yeah, Edelson. Is that the Venetian? Yeah, the Venetian. I think his tiles are going to the... Uh, whoa. I'm not sending you to the Venetian. <laughs> but if I were, I would say, check out the Venetian and then check out the, uh, the Chabad. Mike Levin from here. Is... He ran the Venetian for a while. Oh, really? Oh, is he the one, the, the philanthropic? Yeah, yes. He was the one that bought the property for... Um, nice. Yeah. Mike Levin, right? Yeah. Mike Levin is, everyone knows of Bill Gates, right? Hershey Mankiewicz. Right, Hershey's close yeah. with Mike. So, right, in North Fulton. So, you know, Bill Gates has this, uh, has this pledge. The living, we get, what um, it's called? The giveaway is for Giveaway before his, in his lifetime. And so Mike Levin's like, we got to do this for Jewish causes. Right? We got to get Jewish philanthropists involved for Jewish causes to also, I mean, other causes are great, but we got to, if we don't do this, Who's going to do it? Right? We got a, a, I know it's called like the living pledge or something. Something. I'm paraphrasing. Whatever. That's not, that's not the legal name. So what's the point? The point is major. The point is, the point is that each of us, each of us can choose one of two ways. To do what we want to do or to do what we are called upon to do. And to do what we want to do sounds like the way more attractive option. Who doesn't want to do what they want to do? Especially if I can say that what I want to do is holy. But there's a danger in that. There's a danger in just doing what I want to do because it, it feels holy. What happens when it ends up, I want to do something that's not so holy? What happens when my definition of holiness is not godly? That's a problem. And so in the final analysis, there is an advantage of the service, of the servant over that of the, of the son. The servant who is dedicated, who is committed, who surrenders to the mission. The Yaakov who says to his mother, this is a bad idea, but I trust you. I'm going to wear this suit and I'm going to, I'm going to walk in to my dad and get the blessings to chart my path forward. I don't want to do this, but if you want me to do this, I'm going to do this. That is the path. It's the Joseph who was sent to Egypt initially against his will who didn't choose to go to Vegas, sorry, who didn't choose to go to Egypt, but who was sent to Egypt by his brothers, nay, nay, is that a word? 
by God. Right? As you mentioned. It's Yosef who's sent by God to Egypt and who accepts that as his calling, as his mission. It's Yosef who, when everyone looks at him, Potiphar's wife, the butler, they say, oh, the Jewish guy. You mean the Jewish guy? The Jewish guy. The Hebrew? The Hebrew. It's that, Yosef, who becomes our source of inspiration in our lives. To not be afraid of the halls of power, to not cower before the world, to not bend to the darkness, but to remain a light shining bright amongst our world, to fulfill the promise that God told Abraham, look out at the stars and see them and count them, and so will be your descendants. And the commentaries wonder, there aren't so many Jews. What was God saying? Your children will be like the stars in the heaven. That implies a lot. You're the fuse of the nations. There's another, there's another message. Against the backdrop of darkness, God is telling Abraham, your children will shine brightly. Despite the darkness around them, they will never sh stop shining their light. So may we today never stop shining, despite the challenges around us, and may we indeed be like Joseph's light unto the nations. Thank you for joining me this morning for Kabbalah Cafe, and hopefully this will energize all of our weeks to bring more light into this world. L'chaim, Bartia. Thank you, thank you. Amen, amen. Thank you, Mariana. Tony, Alex, Mariana, David, Lisa, Matt, good to see you. All right, I want to make sure we say hi to everybody. Um, great to be part of it. All right, uh, what's going on this week? Check your local listings for, for broadcast, for programming. Um, and uh, we're back next week. Oh, quick word of, uh, quick word of um, scheduling. Next week is the 24th. Who's around next week? If we have enough, yeah, maybe some. Okay. Then I think if I'm around, then I think we'll do it. All right, stay tuned. You guys are out? All right. It's Arab. It's Arab Chinese. <laughs> Thank you. It was driving me crazy. It was driving me crazy. Huh? Yeah, yeah, we're we're gonna we're gonna re yeah we're gonna reveal that out. Um, Dr. Maxi, yeah, yeah, yeah. Dr. Maxi, don't go yet. We're gonna speak for for a minute. Matt, good to see you. Um, Kabbalah, the Matrix, maybe. Or some other stuff. Um, I did one um, on the Sphero, like a basic primer standalone class. There's a few ones that I have. I did one during the pandemic. I think I did like Kabbalah 2020, which is so dated now. Um, but something like that, or I don't remember. I don't remember. But there's that one. There's the Kabbalah Matrix, which I think, although it's like framed in a movie, but I think it gives a lot of the foundations. Um, and some other stuff. Right. Who's starting? Right. So I would tell them. I would tell them that, like the, I would say, like a guiding, uh, a guiding perspective is, 
even if it feels like it's not starting from like a, a, a zero point, like from a beginner's point, it's kind of like quantum physics. You just jump in, it'll start making sense. <laughs> right? It'll, I mean, as you know, from personal experience, like it'll, it'll all, it all comes together. It all comes together. Yeah, yeah. If I think of a specific, those are the two ones that I had in mind, although the second one, again, I forgot the name of it. Um, I will try to look it up. We should have audio and video of both. Um, somewhere. Audio for sure. Yeah. 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 Okay. Good. Good to see you. All right. We'll see you guys. Take care.